Welcome to Trailblazing Entrepreneurs, the new podcast series from Salesforce App Exchange. In this series, we chat to world-class entrepreneurs and founders and explore the journey as well as share practical insight to build successful businesses. I'm your host, Sandra Peignot, Director of the ISB Business at Salesforce. And in today's episode, I'm joined by Hiroki Takeuchi. Hiroki is a founder and CEO of GoCardless. GoCardless is an online payment SaaS company based out of London. So, Hiroki, hi. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me onto the podcast. Oh, you're very welcome. I've been looking forward to this one. So, so you started GoCarless with two other co-founders, uh, which have since left the business and, and created their own businesses. So how did you adapt to the new reality of being the sole CEO and, and being on your own at the helm? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, I think, um, obviously, we started the business, uh, Matt, Tom and myself, and the two of them departed in, in very different ways. So you know, with Tom, I think he, he left uh, earlier on and I think it, it was more uh, driven by a realisation. Uh, and you have to kind of remember when we started the business, we were still very young, right? I mean, I was, I think I was like 23 or 24, maybe. I think we didn't really know what we were doing. And we, we realised like as we were building the business, okay, actually, this is what we're building. We're building a B2B business. Tom realised that that wasn't what gave him energy. Um, and so, you know, he, he left when he realised that. And it was, you know, very much an amicable thing. But with Matt, it was quite a different sort of situation and actually touches on the question you're asking quite directly, really, because w what happened uh, was that we were growing the business, things were going well, the team was increasing in size, and we got to a level of scale where all of a sudden we had never had any kind of roles before, right? Like across the whole company, we didn't really have job titles, we didn't have clear areas of responsibility, everyone kind of mucked in doing a little bit of everything. And, and as we started to scale, you know, we realized that that wasn't going to work and we needed to be a bit more clear about, okay, well, this is how the different roles in the company need to be focused. And that was equally true of us as leaders. You know, we needed to have someone that was going to be running the business and, and to take on that kind of CEO role. And when we came to that realization, we also came to the realization that that wasn't the relationship that we had, right? We were partners. I wasn't going to report to him and he wasn't going to report to me. We, we realized that in being in a position where we needed someone to take that role, one of us was going to need to take a, a step back from the company. And so, you know, we both thought, okay, it'd be great to do this. You know, it could have been either of us. Um, I will often wonder what would have happened if, you know, how much more successful we'd have been if Matt had been the one that took the helm. <laughs> Uh, but in the end, you know, we it's just a sliding kind of, door moment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. And we, we, we got, uh, we just, uh, you know, I guess got into a room and uh, looked each other in the eyes and uh, decided, okay, we're not leaving this room until we've decided who's going to do it. And uh, Matt was really gracious and he kind of gave me the opportunity and also the responsibility uh, to continue steering the ship. You know, it was a big learning curve for me because you know, obviously we had to start thinking about things like how does leadership work? How do we make decisions as a business? How do we scale the thing? And and I definitely had to adapt the way that uh, I thought about my role quite significantly as part of that transition. But, you know, has been a, a really exciting learning curve for me, for sure. Well, you talk about the, the biggest learning. So just maybe just if you fast forward now, would you say that you wish you had had that conversation before? I mean, it was fairly amicable, as you mentioned, you know, there, but you could have gone either way. Would you advise maybe entrepreneurs if they start a business with a group of friends to 
maybe have those conversations early on and say, if we get to a position where we get quite big and we need to change our role, would you have that then? Or would you sort of let business take its natural course? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's one that's quite difficult to answer, really, because on the one hand, I feel very, very clear and certain in my mind that we would have never got to where we are today without both Matt and Tom having been involved at the start, right? They were both crucial in their own ways to us getting anything off the ground. And so, you know, I feel incredibly lucky to have started the journey with them. And in many ways, I wouldn't do anything differently. At the same time, obviously, there's a level of risk attached to the kind of path we went down, right? I mean, it ended up working out very well for us, but you could equally imagine a world where it could have become a lot messier. You know, we avoided that, I think, because we had really close relationships, especially Matt and I, when we were going through that situation, you know, we're really great friends. We'd lived together before we started the company. We continue to be really good friends today. Um, And so, you know, I think it was one of those things where it was like, okay, well, we had that fundamental relationship we could fall back on. And so on the one hand, I kind of feel like, well, look, like in some ways it's a good problem to have, right? Because if you're getting to the level of scale and starting to grow the business and you need to make these decisions, then it's better to focus on having the opportunity to have that challenge than worrying about all of the the kind of things before that, right? And so, you know, on the one hand, I would say don't, you know, don't worry about it. But I think that that does rely on that very close relationship as co-founders and you know it depends on the situation right I mean if I was starting a business with someone I didn't know very well well firstly I probably would never do that but if I was and sometimes you need to right like maybe you're a non-technical co-founder you have this fantastic idea and vision for something where you need a technical co-founder but you just don't have anyone in your network that is the right fit for that and you need to find someone many fantastic businesses have started like that but if that's the case, then obviously you don't know the person you're starting a business with in the same way. And there, I think those kind of roles become more important and being clear on them up front. We relied more on the kind of the underlying relationship we had from the beginning. Obviously, we didn't really realise the importance of things like roles early on, but it didn't end up being a problem for us. You talk about scaling up, you know, and obviously uh, you started the business, you know, even younger than you are now. And, and obviously now you are in, you know, over 50,000 customers, you know, you've got offices in multiple countries and, and you raise some serious money. So how did you cope with that transition, you know, between being a startup to scale? And things I'm really interested in is the sort of element of losing control. Was there an element for you to say, actually, I used to do everything. You talked about mocking up earlier. How did you sort of handle that sort of transition from having those roles, as you mentioned, and, and maybe an element of losing control? I think the main thing to say is that these things don't happen overnight, right? It's, it's more gradual. So it's not like you one day go from being fully in control and everything, being involved in everything to suddenly being involved in much fewer things and losing control overnight, right? It's something that happens gradually over the period of weeks, months, years. And so it's something that, you know, you gradually get used to. Clearly, at least in my case, it's not been like a 100% smooth journey in that, right? You know, there's definitely times where you look back and you think, okay, I've made some mistakes here, you know, and I've learned from them. I think the, the main thing is, uh, the, the pattern I've noticed is that you never think that you're micromanaging something until you realize in hindsight that you were, right? Um, and so there's definitely been instances along the way where I've realized, oh, do you know what? You know, probably I was too involved in this and actually uh, it would have been better if I'd have uh, you know, <laughs> uh, been a bit more 
uh, open to other people doing it earlier on. Um, and I think that, you know, the interesting thing is that as the business scales, you know, obviously the challenges are always changing. You know, in the early days, it's much more about, you know, how do we do specific things, right? How can we make a great website? How can we, you know, build this product? How can we sell to these customers? And then as it grows, it becomes more about, okay, well, how do we create the right environment and find the right people that can go and do that at the next level of scale, right? And so the the challenges change all the time. And, And for me, like, that's one of the things that really energizes me and keeps me excited on this journey is, is that constant change. And I always sort of say to everyone that I'm the least experienced person in the business, right? Because at any point in time, this is the largest team I've ever managed. I've never been at this level of scale before. And so I'm constantly learning, right? And and I think that that learning is, is what you know, really excites me and, and keeps me energized through the journey. No, and that's interesting because you mentioned um, that sort of the, the perceived lack of experience, at least in your eyes. And I think in the past, you I think you called something like the imposter syndrome, I think you, you mentioned that in, in a previous interview. So how did you cope with the element of, you know, potentially being not having had that much experience in, in managing people? What was your coping mechanism for that? Yeah, I mean, definitely I've been on a learning curve in that regard because, you know, one of the probably the biggest early mistakes that we made was that we had this mentality of massively undervaluing experience and thinking that we could reinvent everything, right? We're young, we had a team full of other young people. We hired some of the smartest people that I've ever worked with, right? Um, and so there was a lot of raw intellect in the in the team, but probably a little bit of hubris and, you know, arrogance in thinking that, you know, experience didn't count for much. One of the, the big lessons that I learned um, along the way uh, through this journey is the value of experience and, and how you get that right balance between the fresh perspective that someone without experience brings and the energy and hunger that someone without experience can bring with the value of experience. And when I realized that and accepted that and embraced it, that was when I felt like we really charted the next kind of path in our journey and were able to accelerate our speed of execution and what we were able to deliver as an organization. You know, I think the main way in which I've sort of learned to combat that lack of experience that I have is by finding people and getting very comfortable with hiring people that are far more experienced and capable than I ever w- will be, right? And, you know, I work with people that I feel very, very lucky to work with. You know, they are fantastic uh, at what they do. And leaning on that experience, learning from that experience, that that is definitely uh, a way in which I've found I've been able to accelerate my own development. And that's fascinating. And how did you go about finding those people? Because you mentioned, you know, you were a bunch of... Uh very enthusiastic individuals at the beginning, you know, with a lot of great ideas and raw talent. How did you go about finding those guys? Did you already know those people you were going to go and sort of talk to to get that experience? No, 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 not at all. I mean, this is where the value of investors can come through for sure. Um, Many of the people that we've hired were people that we that were recommended to us by our investors and we were able to leverage our investors' networks. 
which were obviously far more extensive than our own. Also, you know, working with recruiters and finding people that really understand the business that we're building and can help you to identify and attract the right kind of talent. You have to you have to cast a very wide net. And especially, you know, in Europe, where it's quite different from San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley, where we're still, from an ecosystem perspective, relatively early, right? You know, if I think about what it was like when we first started the business almost 10 years ago, there, there was no tech ecosystem in, in Europe, really. I mean, most of the people that I knew and my friends thought that I'd just become unemployed when I said that I was starting a business. There wasn't really this kind of ecosystem that we have today. You have to cast a very wide net to find that kind of talent, especially talent that has gone through that scaling experience before. And I think that that, that scaling experience is, is incredibly valuable. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things that I look for a lot in the people that we hire in particular key positions is that experience of going through those kind of scaling journeys. And so, you know, there, there, I wouldn't say that I, I can point to a magic bullet. You know, there, there is no single way of, of finding great talent. I, I think that um, you have to you have to just cast a very wide net. You know, this talent exists out there and it's just about finding them and then persuading them that your journey is the one that's worth uh, joining. Would you say that that the way you portray yourself to those individuals you're trying to bring on board and the story you tell to the investors, is that the same? Is that the same story, how you sort of sell your business to them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's for me quite fundamental because you have to have a level of authenticity, in my opinion. As a leader, that authenticity doesn't come if you're going and spinning different stories to different audiences all the time, right? It's, I can't remember who said it, but I remember there was one quote about you know someone that basically said, I don't, I don't lie because I can't keep more than one story in my head at once. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm definitely uh, in that camp. And so I think you have to be true to yourself and honest. And a big part of what I think is important in attracting people to your journey is about really having that personal conviction in what you're doing and personal excitement in what you're doing. Right. If you don't, then it's very difficult to fake. Mm, absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree more. And um, so you talk about you raise, I mean, you raise an impressive $122 million of funding, which is fantastic. And we often talk about, you know, what to say to investors. But actually, maybe if we were to flip the coin a little bit and to look on the other side, what would you say the things you shouldn't go and do or say to the investors when you're pitching? There's, all, there's often a lot of focus on investment. And sometimes I wonder whether that misses the point a little, right? Because, I mean, investment is super important because it gives you the fuel to you know, build your business. But it's not the end in itself, right? It's a means to an end. And, um, you know, I, I would flip it and say, well, look, like, don't focus so much on what you're going to say or not say to investors and focus more on building a great product that customers love, right? And if you do that, then investors are going to want to invest in your business because you have something valuable. You, there are people that are out there that are fantastic at fundraising and they could fundraise for a terrible business. But the surer way to go is, you know, to just, just build something and that people love, right? And, and then the investment side will take care of itself. What I would actually say I think is more important than, you know, what you say or don't say to investors is actually being clear in your own mind about what you're looking for investors for because what i find seems to be more common is people 
start looking for investment without really realizing what they're getting themselves in for. You need to find investors that are aligned to what you're trying to build and you know what is important to you in the journey that you're on and ensuring that the, any investor that you take on board is aligned to that. That would be you know, my strong counsel. So just um, maybe drilling and double clicking on one or two points you mentioned here. So you talk about having a great product that people want to buy. How did you go about this in terms of you know, when you had an idea and how did you know you had the right idea? I, I think um, definitely in the early days, there was a, a few kind of iterations that we went through before we landed on a formula that seemed to resonate and work. And actually, in our case, we built something that resonated much wider than we realized initially. We, we were having a problem trying to collect payments ourselves. And then, you know, we were building something to try and solve that. And in building that, realized that actually lots of other people had this same problem and we could help them with what we built. And so we started a little bit the other way around um, than most businesses maybe start. And so, I mean, I think that the surest way, though, to, to, to know that you're on the right track is just to find a few users that really, really love what you do, right? And then follow what they want and what they ask. It's really much harder, I think, to build something that people really love as opposed to build something that a lot of people just like. And it's when you kind of cross that chasm between something that people like to something that people love where I think that you find success. So when you were at Oxford University, you were the uh, vice president of uh, Oxford Entrepreneurs and you co-founded a varsity pitch in this competition between Oxford and Cambridge. So first of all, is the competition between Oxford and Cambridge as intense as they make it to be? I mean, I, I look at the race every year on the water, but is it as bad, you know, on the day to day on the campus? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of set that competition up more as a, in jest as opposed to as a, as a true kind of you know uh, competitive thing between the two universities and you know I, I mean I feel really lucky to have been part of that organization you know when I joined university I didn't know anything about entrepreneurialism or technology startups or any of this world and it really opened my eyes of what was possible and uh, into a world that I'd never seen before um, and that was what got me interested in building a company in the first place you know it was really very much more focused on trying to raise awareness and encourage students to think more broadly about what's possible because you know when when I was at Oxford I mean everyone went into either banking consulting or law right I mean it was like those three industries were kind of like 80% of what people went into or at least it felt that way and so it, you know it was trying to encourage this idea of well there are other things that you can do and you can build things yourself from scratch and build really interesting things from scratch and you know that that was a a, a really fantastic entry point into the world of tech startups for me at least. Now that makes sense because I think you know we we spoke to a few people earlier and we find the journey to entrepreneurship is, is always, you know, starts from many different positions. You know, you got people that from day one, they knew they always wanted to do this. And and for them, it always been about acquiring the right skills and, and building the right network in order to sort of, I guess, uh, realize their, their, their dream. And other people 
have been, you know, in, in large sort of corporate careers beforehand and then and realize actually they were onto something and decided just to make the leap between between the two. I guess from from your end, it sounds like, you know, Oxford time really opened your eyes to, to those possibilities and you kind of uh, joined uh, and jumped straight into that sort of venture. Yeah, I mean, I actually didn't go straight from university to starting a business, uh, mainly because I didn't really feel ready at a personal level to do that. And so I actually went into consulting like, as you know, 80% of uh, the rest of the, <laughs> the, the population did. So you, you met the stereotype then. But yeah, but, but I think for me, it was, it was more about, uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was a university that I really caught the bug and got excited about the idea of building something. And so I, I knew from that point that it was always something that I wanted to do, but it was more about you know, when would be the right time to do it. And, you know, it took me a couple of years after university to, to, to I guess, build up the courage. And is that about courage or you talk about, you know, getting ready? What, how did you find that moment? Did you wake up one morning and say, that's it? Or was it like a gradual process of realisation that, you know, you were ready for that jump? Well, well, I mean, for me, it was it was almost by design a bit more artificial in, in the sense that I, I purposefully joined a graduate programme that was a two-year programme. And so, you know, one of the big things that appealed to me was they kicked you out after two years. And, you know, most people go and do an MBA <laughs> or they go and work in, you know, industry and, and you know, maybe then go back to uh, the, that consultancy. And I thought, OK, well, that's great because in two years time, I'm going to be forced to make this decision again. Do I start something or not? And, you know, when it came around to it after those two years, at that point, I did feel ready and, you know, I'd been talking and Matt actually that's where, where I met Matt was at that consulting company and so you know we got to know each other we talked a lot about you know different ideas and that was where we formed that bond and and then decided to start a company together it was almost by design a little bit that I, I kind of I guess put a line in the sand where I said okay I'm going to make this decision again. So in 2016, you were involved in a cycling accident in London that left you paralysed from the waist down. I can't begin to comprehend how you might have changed your life. Um, did it impact the way you run your business? Yes, I think it did. Um, from a sort of, I guess, a purely professional perspective, it was actually quite a positive experience for me. You know, I was very lucky in that, you know, I obviously had to take quite a significant amount of time off uh, work. And, you know, I was very fortunate that my wife was, you know, amazing at supporting me and, and helping me to recuperate. My family and my friends were there, like supporting me through the kind of personal experience I was going through. But I was also incredibly supported by my business, right? My investors, my board, my team, they were very, very supportive and they made sure that everything was looked after but also gave me the reassurance that whenever I was ready, that they were looking forward to welcoming me back to the business. And, you know, obviously you know, going through an experience like that, I, I, I had to kind of almost decide again whether to go back to work, right? It wasn't an obvious thing. And initially I thought I wouldn't, right? To be honest, I was like, it was the last thing on my mind. Um, but then you know, as I started to readjust to the reality of what life would be like living in a wheelchair and all this kind of stuff, I started to look forward to going back, right? And and I think the reason for me it felt, feels, at least in hindsight, like a positive experience is it was really a, quite a unique opportunity to take time out and rethink my own personal priorities and also reflect on what was going on 
at work and with the business that we were building. And at the same time as having that opportunity to reflect, also because of the situation, I was effectively like redundant, right? Like the team took over everything. So I was able to come back with a, almost a blank sheet of paper and say, well, what is my contribution to this, this business? What, what is my role? Where can I add value? And almost redesign my role from scratch. Um, and so, you know, that was a, a really great experience because it was a forcing function to realize that a lot of the things that I'd been doing probably I wasn't the best person to do. And, you know, we t- talked a bit earlier about, you know, realizing about what you micromanaged. Well, it turned <laughs> yeah. out I've been micromanaging quite a lot. Uh, and so, you know, uh, and, and there was a lot of people that were much better at doing those things than me. And so it was a great opportunity to rethink my role. It gave me more energy uh, to kind of think, okay, well, what do I want to achieve on this journey? And, you know, be a bit bolder in what we were trying to do. Obviously, it gave me an opportunity to redesign the role as well. I would say that the way in which we run the business now and the way that I do my job is quite significantly different now than it was before my injury. And I hope for the better. Yeah. And would you say, you know, you mentioned the word positive in hindsight. Would you say that sort of that transition of role and that change of role of yours has accelerated your growth or sort of changed the course corrected or changed the direction of the business? Yeah, I think it's definitely accelerated the the trajectory of the business mainly because it's given lots of people the opportunity to to grow and step up and you know contribute uh, more meaningfully to the business i think i've kind of learned now that the fewer things i'm involved in the better in some ways right you know <laughs> there it's much better to let people do great work than it is to try and do it yourself for me it's more about focusing on creating that environment for people to thrive uh, and focusing on not so much the the doing the work and more enabling people to do great work. Um, and you know, that seems to have been uh, a really positive step for us. And, and that's, I guess, just leave us uh, to ask you one final question about, you know, your number one tip for our listening out there. Maybe if there's one thing for me, it's about maybe being uh, clear on what you're trying to do. I think it's easy to get caught up in the day to day and it's easy to underestimate just how long it takes to build something meaningful. You know, I think Bill Gates said that people generally massively overestimate what they can do in one year, but massively underestimate what they can do in 10. And, you know, that definitely feels like my experience. You know, um, it takes a long time to build something meaningful. But when you achieve it, you can build things that you never you know, dreamed would be possible. But these journeys are long. It takes a long time. And so if you're thinking of starting a business, probably go in with your eyes open and be clear on you know, the commitment that you're making. Be clear on what you're trying to build and you know, then focus relentlessly on building that thing. Eriki, thank you so much for chatting with me today and thank you for joining us for the second episode of season number two. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear us talk about, tweet us at App Exchange. I'll be back soon with some more insights, so make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app to be the first one to know about it. Until then, goodbye.